opening we're we're awake uh yep yep and we're back we're back with marooned on mars with matt and hillary and And i'm matt i'm hillary you're hillary and we're matt and hillary and we're talking about the kim stanley robinson mars trilogy that's right we're talking about blue mars and we're talking about experimental procedures the second to last chapter in the trilogy the penultimate chapter as they say penultimate um we have one more to go. It's such it's such a short one too. The next one, Phoenix Lake, um, and so we're you know coming to the end of this journey. I know it makes me feel very um, emotional. Okay, emotional. I know that's not okay with you. Vague, vague. <laughs> vague. I want specificity. Um, it makes me feel sad. Sad. I mean, this is a sad chapter in many ways. Yeah, there were yes. kinds of moments where I was like, oh man, it's very like self reflect, yes. self reflexive in a way of like the. You know, Sax is worried about losing his memory and dying, and the trilogy is coming to an end, and the podcast is reaching a kind of inflection point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So all it's kinds not coming of, to an end, though. No, it's not coming no. to an end. Um, but there'll be some some surprises in store. Some <laughs> maybe some format changes. <laughs> Look forward to that. Um, so uh, we've been gone for a long time because we've been very busy yeah and so um sorry for that folks out there in listener land i feel like our last episode was so long it was oh it was it was like a double dip episode it was like double dip we we got into like morning zoo crew uh length (laughs) genre right when they're on the air for like five hours we were just for two like an hour and 45 i think people were probably relieved that uh, we gave them some space after that. Probably. It takes a lot epic, to digest. Epic voyage that, with us. Yeah. Um, have you uh, done anything in the meantime that's worth that's noteworthy in terms of the uh, KSR universe or uh, science Ooh. fictional uh, meanderings? Uh, science. Well, you know, I'm always making some science fictional meanderings. Um, Aren't we all? Uh, I am teaching a feminist science fiction class now, class that I love. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. Oh, I ran into a student from last quarter Mm -hmm. the other day, an undergraduate student, and he was like, oh, hey, Dr. Strang. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, hey, what's up? Mm -hmm. And he's like, so we're reading this book in this class that I'm taking, and it's like about utopia. And I was like, oh, cool. And he's like, yeah. And as soon as we started, I was like, utopia, I'm prepared for that. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't and we all prepared I for you, like, Oh, that's so nice. I yeah, I felt like this is possibly the best compliment a student has ever given me yeah. is that I prepared them yeah. for Utopia for something <laughs> for sure, or for another class. Like they were actually yeah, able exactly. to take something out of your class and exactly. apply it and see, like, oh, that's like something yeah. I'm learning now. I'm prepared for it. Um, I too am prepared for Utopia. Oh God, I can't wait. Yeah, Jesus. Um, seems like a far a long way off. Um, I'm reading a. Uh, um, uh, Vonda McIntyre novel that I hadn't read before mm. because I'm sad because she died oh. recently, um, which I think is a big loss, mm. um, which is uh, set in the court of Louis XIV, 
14th. That's the Sun King, right? It's 14. Yeah. Uh, and involves a sea monster. And uh, it's amazing. That's it's sounds awesome. pretty cool. It's really cool. It's really cool. I'll talk. I'll talk about it sometime when I'm done. Okay. Cool. Yeah, it's awesome. I read um, Escape from Kathmandu. Oh yeah. How was with, that? It was delightful. Um, it's really funny. Um, and so, so it was a kind of uh, which is for those not aware <laughs> who are listening. It's a, uh, one of Stan's novels from I think it was published in 1989. Mm-hmm. So it was from a few years before the trilogy, and it's such. It was such a kind of breath of fresh air actually because it is so like light and funny and um, uh, a real kind of event like a series of adventures and stuff. And so it was really interesting to read it in the context of reading mm. the Mars trilogy, which is you know. Uh, not light. No, no, that's true. <laughs> it's a lot of heavy true. stuff there. Um, uh, and it was, yeah, there's like, they discover the Yeti uh, and nice. like um, have all kinds of qu- weird quasi-mystical adventures. But then also there's really, inter- there is still like the interesting kind of political um, um, thing. Have you read it? I have not, no. There's a fun thing where uh, basically it gets into the kind of government of, Nepal and India and China and stuff and how how things kind of work uh, there in a very um, roundabout way, mm. right? Where there's people who are officially in charge, but they aren't really in charge. But then the people who are in charge are all corrupt and the king knows all about it. And he's in and the king is actually in league with the underground. So it's a weird thing of like, no, we don't want to depose the king. We actually need to get these like bureaucrats out of the way. The king is actually kind of cool. Uh, and uh, all kinds, of, it's just, uh, it's, a f- it's a delightful romp. <laughs> a romp. I was going to ask you, speaking of adventures, I mean, this is like a detour from, uh, not to go on an adventure. Oh, not another like detour, not uh, on this podcast. Well, it's a detour from thinking, um, about books that we've been reading but uh just because the last i was just having this thought but it's not formed into a thought um like the last section of this chapter we were just chatting about is like you know um ann and sax on a boat at sea and the boat has turned into a dirigible i was actually just like walking down the stairs and like chuckling to myself at the idea of the boat that turns into a dirigible yeah which is yeah it's just like awesome it's a good idea ways um uh but I was thinking, like, um, do you have thoughts about the places in these books where we get, like, adventure? Because I feel like it's something, you know, um, like, this chapter is a good example of we're in Sax's head a lot. So, like, the paragraphs, some of the paragraphs are extremely long mm-hmm. as he's, like, running through. And like, there's a kind of stream of consciousness aspect Stream of consciousness. Where, like, and, like, he's going through all of his reading, you know. Um, uh, and I think that's a really, in- it's an interesting thing to do so close to the end of a book um and i think you know definitely like thematically and in terms of plot we can think about why this chapter would end with ann and sex together and on a boat and in peril but i was just thinking about how in how many um uh how many uh ksr books there are just these like great like adventure episodes that are like you know on a boat or like you know climbing up something yeah, or, or I mean running just, from a flood right, or, exactly. like a slow motion like flood or and something. not and you know and some of them that are really like like this one like where they both are in serious peril and like the description of their bodies getting battered yeah. is like really alarming really disturbing really disturbing but then also there's something that is like so like um 
uh, it's like so energetic and and like kind of buoyant in yeah, some ways too. Yeah. Right? And they have kind of there's still some like witty there's some witty repartee between them as well. It's like they have a, they can maintain their sense of humor. <laughs> sex, sex. I love they, you. All blood then, is spewing yeah. out of his nose, and she doesn't <laughs> respond at all. Um, oh, and then he's like, oh, and I learned Morse code as a child, and he's like <laughs> tapping on her and thinking, but maybe Anne doesn't know Morse code. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I actually was thinking about this too of like how what a weird it, it feels like kind of a a weird it did feel like a kind of weird place in the novel to like have the sudden like you know perilous boat yeah, adventure. Yeah. Um and uh like weird in a good way. Yeah, weird in yeah. a good way. Like um it mm. it kind of fits in with the kind of we were talking too just before about the way that the that the uh, political aspect of mm. the trilogy is put on the back burner here, you know, uh, in order to focus on what Sachs feels is kind of a more immediate or pressing matter, mm. which is like the problem of memory and, you know, ongoingness in terms of just keep, keep, keep alive. Um, and so then the end of this with this kind of adventure moment is a nice uh, embodied, like, truly material yeah yeah right. but also at the mercy of technology and the elements too right. that there's very little they can actually do to control their um their destiny at this moment so i guess it works as a nice kind of another good like pathetic fallacy uh-huh. kind of like allegorical moment but yeah the the bigger it's I've been trying to and really failing at trying to do like some kind of synthetic work of thinking about the trilogy as a whole just because it's so large and trying to like chart out the kind of um, patterns and parallels and things like that, Uh, especially in this chapter, which is all about memory. And they are, you know, reliving the first episode that we saw of the death of John Boone and there's, we're now seeing it again from new perspectives and angles. And so, um, I think it's just, it would require like, um, some kind of large cork board with like string and like, uh, dates and timelines and things like that to actually like figure out the full structure of this and where the event to get to your point where the adventures come in. Right. Because they do, Sometimes they're telegraphed, and sometimes like this, they just come out of nowhere. Yeah, yes, uh, right, Rant, chance, yeah. chance, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I was thinking, because I was just teaching um, Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin. I saw um, someone reading that on the bus the other day. I wonder if they're in your class. Did you talk to them? No. <laughs> talk to a stranger. Uh, so, um, and one of the things that I think is really uh just like one of the things that's amazing about that book is it's structured in a way that I, I think you can read the book without thinking it has this structure, but like um, it shifts you from this novel that is like, seems to be primarily about kind of political intrigue and diplomacy. And there are a lot of other things that are happening, but those things um, to the last third of the book becomes what could be an adventure tale, which is just two people together having to make their way across this extraordinary ice sheet, this like harrowing, but also like joyful journey. Um, uh, And one of the things I think is really like, it's a place where you notice like um, uh, how uh, like um, 
the sort of like speed of narrative can change as a book goes along and you make like huge differences by like you know going from like the slower parts to fast parts from right. like the part where you are like and i think this is this is interesting to me in science fiction when you think about how you do things like exposition or mm-hmm. you know you want to write a chapter about memory and you want as in this case part of what the chapter wants us to do is to like try to think really hard about accounts of memory and we probably don't can't call to mind that many like right. scientific accounts of memory right um, but we want to think about that in order to be able to imagine, you know, like Sachs's, you know, speculations or about memory as like quantum, right? Mm-hmm. All the, that kind of thing. Um, so you have to do this like expository work, but you have to do that without like miring the reader and feeling like yeah. they're right. Um, that they're reading a graduate student paper. Or yeah, like yeah, exa- like exactly, manual. exactly. Yeah. But then also like adventure, you know, like we, you know, I think you often think like science fiction is just like full of adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Right? That's like this, this, the, the, the stereotypical view of it, right? Yeah. In the, or that sort of like pulpy mode, right? Which just jumps you from, uh, ooh, end of the chapter. Oh, onto a new adventure, right? They yeah. were not eaten by whatever it was. Yeah. They did not fall into the crevasse, but et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I don't, I just like, I think that there's something interesting to think about like, the place of these, I mean, I think you actually really got at it by saying that that last sequence like throws Saxon Anne also into their own embodiment. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it obviously isolates them together, but because they're completely unable to communicate. Yeah. Earlier when she takes him climbing in Olympus Mons, right? Um, and he has, I mean, like he's like climbing up, you know, squeezing yeah. his fingers into these tiny yeah. little holds. Um and she's like, but you weren't worried about memory then. Yeah, and, right. And then she's like, that's why I like climbing, yeah. right? And but that's such a different, you know. There she like seems to be quite deliberately like showing him a way that he could be without having to worry about this. But at the end, they've had the memory treatment. Mm-hmm. They've learned something about the two of them, and then they're just like thrown into this like crazy mm-hmm. like adventure that ends with them sort of like, you know, the blimp goes down and they open up the like top of the boat and then just. Dirty yeah. water gushes yeah, yeah, out. You yeah, know? I like too that. I mean, I think, and I'll, I'll relate this to something else later. But like, um, the chapter is called "Experimental Procedures." So the boat itself that they're in is experimental. Like, it's a, it's not quite a prototype, but it's a new kind of boat. Yeah. He doesn't know. I mean, mm-hmm. he knows that it turns into a blimp, but he doesn't really know what that means. <laughs> and he seems like he kind of remembers that late in the game. Kind of late in the game, <laughs> exactly. I was thinking like, if I'm Anne, I'm like. It can fly? What the fuck are we been doing here for an hour and a half? Like, blasting around the, you know. Um, uh, so that's an experimental procedure. But then it's kind of like, you know, you can just do the kind of very, like, um, not quite, tr- um, uh, I don't know, very basic. I, you know, life's an experimental procedure, Hillary. Sure. We don't know what's going to happen. Everything's just, we're just trying things out. Um and um which is just uh, true um (laughs) even though it's kind of lame to say but then um uh i forgot what else i was going to say but um the quality of adventure that happens on the kind of physical plane of people actually like climbing a mountain or outrunning a flood or almost drowning or uh being on clark and having the tether uh Mm. separated and then floating out into space and having to be picked up by a bunch of space babes uh like peter (laughs) was um (laughs) i like space babes um (laughs) who can blame you 
Robinson in this chapter also has an opportunity um, through Sachs's research, which is what you were talking about, the, the passages of him doing research, to frame science as this great centuries-long adventure. Right. And it starts, on, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's about two full pages of text on page 656. But he gets back into the, he gets back into a new problem, which is the memory problem. He starts out like by looking at just senescence in general, and he finds it's too big. Uh, I'll never, it'll never get solved in my lifetime, but maybe it'll get, it'll get solved sometime. But the more pressing problem is memory because he's having these blankouts. Um, so he starts diving into the literature. And um, and uh, so on page 656, it says, so he struggled on. As he did, he saw it anew, as fresh as in his undergraduate days. The struggle, uh, the structure of science was so beautiful. It was surely one of the greatest achievements of the human spirit, a kind of stupendous Parthenon of the mind, <laughs> constantly a work in progress, like a symphonic epic poem of thousands of stanzas being composed by them all in a giant ongoing collaboration. The language of the poem was mathematics because this appeared to be the language of nature itself. There was no other way to explain the startling adherence of natural phenomena to mathematical expressions of great difficulty and subtlety. And so in this marvelous family of languages, their songs explored the various manifestations of reality in the different fields of science, and each science worked up its standard model to explain things, all constellating at some distance around the basics of particle physics depending on what level or scale was being investigated so that all the standard models hopefully interlocked in a coherent, larger structure. And he goes on and on, and it's like two full pages, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it's such a beautiful kind of picture of what uh, the story of science mm -hmm. is and this kind of... It also uh, emphasizes, too, I think it's in this part, that it's um, a collective endeavor, right? Yeah, yeah. That um, Newton himself had tried to make clear with his comment about standing on the shoulders of giants. In truth, the work of science was a communal thing, extending back even beyond the birth of modern science, back all the way into prehistory, as Michel had insisted, a constant struggle to understand. Now, of course, it was highly structured, articulated beyond the ability of any single individual to fully grasp, but this was only because of the sheer quantity of it. The spectacular efflorescence of structure was not in any particular incomprehensible but was not in any particular incomprehensible one could still walk around anywhere inside the parthenon so to speak and thus comprehend at least the shape of the whole and make choices as to where to study where to learn the current surface where to contribute one could first learn the dialect of the language relevant to the study which in itself could be a formidable task so blah 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 it goes on and on um but that this is a kind of uh this is a kind of like slow motion adventure mm. in a way mm -hmm. like the discovery of science it's not something that happens all at once to one single person but it's something that we're all um involved in the endeavor i mean i think it's a it's an interesting you know there are many places where like if we think about this as being sax and it does feel like it fits with sax's imaginary you know seeing it as the parthenon is like his building his, uh, memory, his palace. memory palace yeah. right um which he sees as a lab. Um, yeah, I was thinking two two points. One is that the um, when uh, I can't remember where this is. I did a really bad job of I did a bad job of marking things this time. But um, he, you know, one is that once um, Sachs decides uh, um, 
to go to uh, Acheron, Acheron, however you say it, um, he thinks like, oh, you know, there is really a difference about doing science on Mars, and that is mm -hmm. the um, not doing it under a capitalist system, not doing it under a system where um, uh, tasks are divided up toward like the production of more value, but instead like in the ways in which the people who are actually doing the work think that they should be divided up, like produces different kinds of possibility, different kinds of knowledge. And I think it's interesting to bring that thought together with the story of like, oh, the long history, mm -hmm. the long history of science is collaborative. Um, and then I, I was also thinking that there's such a, um, you know, this is a chapter about like, um, for one, it's a chapter about death, mm -hmm. um, and and even a little bit about uh, something like what to do with not only the sense of impending death and like the kinds of repression that have to go on to keep you from thinking about death, but a little bit I think it's about the death drive too. I mean, yeah. I kind of think that the adventure at the end, which I feel like is yeah. like charming and hilarious, is also a little bit like, I mean, what the fuck are they doing? Yeah. You know, I mean, there is some element there of like. Well, that's the thing. That's the impression he gets when he hears Anne is climbing. Yes, like, exactly. Peter's like, he, she's climbing. He's like, for pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So there's. And the, that and without her wrist pad thing. Right, right. Which right. she says you have to leave behind. It's like, that's not, that's dangerous, right? Uh, that's death drivey. Which includes my fa my favorite conversation in the chapter when she's like, "This the suit is autonomous," and he's like, "You mean semi autonomous?" <laughs> <laughs> I think that's good. But so like, there's that aspect of things, um, but like that, like sort of like the, um, you know, what do we make of? Uh, I mean, this sounds stupid, but like, what do we make of death? Right? What kind of place does it occupy for us in our lived lives? Um, you know, a question that is obviously, I think, pretty closely related to questions about memory, right, which are about holding on to the pa holding on to the past, like continuing to allow the past to be a presence for us. But also in this chapter, for Sachs, holding on to memory is about staving off death. So those are questions, this is related to the science thing in a like slow looping fashion. Um, so those are questions that, um, they're like profoundly common questions, right? I mean, these are just like questions about like um, being whatever kind of living creature has a memory. So, you know, maybe we think mostly questions about being human, yeah. but 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 definitely questions about living, right? right. Um, deeply, deeply common. Uh, and then also the chapter is about the way in which like those questions have a way of like driving people into their own individuality or seeming to shore up their own individuality. I mean, and that's part yeah. of like, you know, right. Right. I mean, so that there's a way in which like the, I think there's a kind of, we both have this sort of like, um, woven through here, the sort of like a, a story that's about sax and about sax, like kind of looking for a sort of companionship at the beginning. He's with Maya and they're identifying colors, right? Mm -hmm. Which is such a like great image of like the shared, but also like the highly specified. You have to look mm -hmm. at a chart to know mm -hmm. what the name of a color mm -hmm. is. Um, at the end, he's with Anne, you know, and we have this kind of like romantic, although also like unromanticized tale of people who maybe love each other or have this like long attachment, this long unacknowledged attachment to each other. So that strand kind of weaves through, but the chapter 
kind of takes us between thinking about these phenomena as mattering because they they give us individuality. That's what memory does. Uh, it staves off death and therefore it allows us to maintain our individuality um, as mattering in, in an individual way versus mattering in a kind of deeply common and shared way. Mm -hmm. um, so at the end of that passage that you were reading about the the uh, about science right and the the parthenon of collaborative scientific endeavor uh sax has a thought this is on 657 um uh in the end politics could not materially affect the structure itself the mathematical edifice of their understanding of the phenomenal world so sax had always believed and no analysis by social scientists nor even the troubling experience of the martian terraforming process had ever caused him to waver in that belief science was a social construct but is also most importantly its own space right. and i was thinking about this as like that faith that sex comes back to again and again in science uh, has become like even more interesting and complicated in this chapter where he wants to also articulate to Anne his regret about mm -hmm. um you know the choices that he makes in pursuit of scientific knowledge on Mars right like mm -hmm. there's a way in which you know he he does want to be able to like tell the sort of story of science as something that like um is human but also is above certain kinds of human entanglements mm -hmm. but I feel like here like you know even the experiment even the idea of self-experiment mm -hmm. like right it's not it can't be it's not some Parthenon like it's right. just like messed up in and through everyday life which doesn't mean it doesn't produce knowledge mm -hmm. it just means it doesn't do that in that untouchable way that yeah. I think he still wants to you know, he still wants well, that, to turn the to the idea right? that science is this pure space, this objective reality that, <coughs> and that's defined by mathematics, right? Right. Which just that that uh, is an illusion we construct so that we can keep doing science in the way that we do it uh, without mm -hmm. having to um, address the far messier, more um, way much way more impossible to quantify questions of you know social. So sociality of just human living together right. and human being as such um, so that um, as when he says science is a social construct it's both constructed by society and it's a kind of a, a tacit agreement that we have to point to a, this third thing that we call science and say that's objective um, uh, and that we can all agree on on that thing as being real because our own individual memories differentiate ourselves from each other, right? right? And that differentiation is what actually gives us meaning personally, but it's not some it's not a meaning that can be quantified. No, and also, you know, you might think like our feeling about like how greatly our memories differentiate us from each other is like an exaggerated one. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, like because well okay go ahead well just because like you know that sort of certainty that like our memories are like highly particular yeah. and couldn't be transposed to anyone else like yeah yeah but he you discovers know, what's that the first thing he remembers is being born being born so that's something <laughs> that we could all yeah potentially remember the mm. same as going but he also remembers he he discovers that um other people remember things about him that he doesn't remember about himself. And right. he remembers other th things about people that they don't remember about themselves. And he and Anne have exactly opposite memories of the exact same event yeah, exactly. happening. And so, so what's a memory then? What's a memory, <laughs> right? Uh, what's a human being? Um, uh, yeah. 
there's that yeah so there's that moment where where is that moment actually uh where he's with zeke i was i'm gonna call him zeke or zake zayek zeke i call him zeke when i read it it's I'm his name is zeke, zeke. <laughs> your name is zeke now um where that scene he is... says it's on page it's a very short passage on page 676 that i want to point to oh, but yeah. basically zeke is like mary lou henner uh, who can remember everything that ever happened to her? You know about this about Mary Lou Henner? She's one of these people. She remembers what she was wearing on April fourteenth, nineteen eighty-two, and what she had for breakfast. Wow, I did not know that about Mary Lou Henner. Well, now you do. So Zeke is uh, Mary Lou Henner in this scenario, <laughs> and he's remembering everything, and they're like scanning his brain, and and um, and they're remembering the the day of John Boone's, oh. Boone's death. And Sachs remembers that he didn't do anything, right? Or he saw it happen. He remembers that he saw it happen, which, again, that would be another thing to, for us to go back and see, like, did we see Sachs seeing that? Or did, is this the first time that we're aware of this? Right. Or is this can, is the other pro- problem that's encountered is not just forgetting, but repression, like right. purposeful forgetting. Right. But anyway, this passage that I wanted, was going to say is, uh, nothing came back to Sachs of that, nothing. It occurred to him with a lurch, that just as there were many things that he had done that no one else would ever know about, there were also things he had done that others remembered that he himself could not recall. So little they knew, so little. And so what I suggest there is like, even if we have a memory of something, we may not have any knowledge yeah, about that memory. Right. Exactly, exactly. So I think in that way, it's like, um, you know, what makes, what makes, so, for Sachs, it feels so urgent to get memory yeah. back, right? Um, but in some ways, like, that's, like, uh, uh, you know, is that a problem of, like, content? Or is that a problem of, like, a, like a, an ability, right? You know, the ability to, like, not lose his train of thought in the middle of a long train of thoughts. Mm-hmm. Here the theory is, like, that kind of memory lapse is tied to like a broader version of recall or whatever it is so that like losing losing like uh your recall of incidents in your past is tied to the way in which like the all of the kind of phenomena of aging they're experiencing where they just like can't hang on to what they were thinking right. or as Sachs experiences here repeatedly even if he tries to record it when he goes back to it what he's recorded is totally just disjointed though he knows what was in his own head was right. like you know yeah uh, coherent happens thought, to me all the time right? and i'm yeah, nowhere oh near i'm yeah. nowhere near as old as sex i know is. me neither yeah. go ahead sorry uh so but you know so like um yeah so i think this is a really interesting moment not least because we are also revisiting i mean as you were just saying we're so uh it you know it could not be more overdetermined that the scene that sax walks in on to see the tests that they're doing on the person with extraordinary memory right. is you know the initiatory and also traumatic scene of the novel which in this chapter sax sort of constitutes as like this is the most traumatic yeah. right the loss of john is the greatest the loss the original you sin know. of mars yeah even though then he thinks back to the woman who died while they were still Right on Earth, so right? T- oh yeah. Um, were they were still on Earth? Are they still- or is she? T- was he thinking about the death of like the first? Or when they first get the fir- up to Mars? The first of the first hundred. But who the died. first, the first one who dies, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, which also then has this, you know, quality. He thinks like right. the beautiful ones died first, or whatever, <laughs> right, you know, so. like. Um, but so the whole, I mean, 
there's a way in which like you know this is about this like investigation into like what is memory like how do we get memory back what is the way in which memory inhabits the brain right, right. all of those kinds of things but then the kinds of memories that we're faced with are like the kinds of memories that like actually are you know described to us as like weighty and charged by theories of memory that don't care about the brain really at all like like psychoanalysis right, right? yeah um but then for the reader like that moment of like seeing i mean the description of zake in the lab is like um uh he's so kind of uh yeah this is on 673 yeah uh after all the young native subjects, when they came to Zake, he looked to sex like a specimen of Homo habilis, whisked out of prehistory to be tested for mental capacity. I mean, just like that is in itself like a wild image. Uh, he was wearing a helmet studded with contact points on its inner surface, and his white beard was damp, his eyes sunken and weary in bruise-colored, withered skin. Nazik sat on the other side of his bed, holding his hand in hers. Hovering in the air over a holograph next to her was a detailed three-dimensional transparent image of some part of his brain. Uh, on the screen by the bed jiggled images of a small tent settlement after dark. Um, and we just like go right into the scenes around the assassination of John Boone. And the story that we get is not the same for us as the story that we got when we right. read that ch opening chapter. Yeah. So like then it's not only like. Because it doesn't feature Frank first of all. Right. Exactly. And yeah. then it's not only like do did we remember it wrong do we not know what the experience was is this experience like the same as the experience of like profound interpersonal uh misunderstanding that sax and ann mm -hmm. have yeah, right? right you know do the two of them remember that scene differently from each other is that the same kind of misremembering that like we have in relation to the beginning of red mars or mm -hmm. is that or you know is it that like Zake's memory of it is colored by something else. I mean, for all for all of the ways in which we're like, you know, the questions that we have are the kinds of questions that we sort of already kind of knew that we should be asking about yeah, right. memory, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, even to the, I love, I mean, I think my favorite part of this chapter is that, um, uh, the sax is like we've all got to go to Underhill. Yeah. We're going to meet at Underhill. Yeah. I no, mean, I it, love the reunion yeah. part. Well, I love how it's basically like, look, we're all going to do LSD. Yeah, we're going to go to the woods yeah. and we're going to have sleeping bags. It's be freaking awesome. And somebody's going to be sober and she's yeah. going to make yeah. us do a good breakfast, so we're going to feel okay. <laughs> we're going to trip balls, man. And then, they, um, and then, right, exactly. But, and then they have like. I they mean, completely do as a fucking crazy trippy experience but then they all wander off, yeah, by, they themselves, wander off by themselves experiencing their shared yeah, past yeah exactly <laughs> yeah well um what was i gonna say i had so many um i'm, I'm like literally having a memory having an idea and then it's like literally like leaving my brain yeah, before yeah. i can even say it but um uh the oh the thing about um what makes a memory as being like the thing, the emotional, like, so you have to have like this intense emotional mm. response to it. And then the tying, you know, that ties memory to trauma that mm -hmm. like something bad has happened or something, but really it's something that's impactful, right. you know, something that alters the pattern of the brain. And this is something that like they, that Robinson talks about or, or Sachs talks about in, in relation to new like quantum theories of the brain that right. basically you can take out chunks of the brain 
um, and it, where you think a memory is stored. And guess what? The person still has that memory because it's just about the pattern, uh, that the quantum pattern of how the brain is working, and it, and, it, and it continues to work in that way even though some chunk is taken out. And, um, and, that, and then the idea then for the memory treatment would be to somehow replay all of your memories all at once so that you reinforce that pattern, right? Um, which is really interesting, but also when you, when you and, and we don't see this happen from Anne's point of view um, pointedly, um, that does mean like replaying all your past traumas. And at one point, Sachs remembers that Michelle had said that Anne was like abused as a right, child. Right. So she might not be having as great a time remembering every single thing about her yeah, life yeah. than Sachs is, is, is having. But then also that um, going back to the to Zeke's memory of John Boone and John Boone's death as the like originary trauma of, you know, conceived of as the originary trauma of like the Martian political problem right um which um we've we've had it multiple times throughout the books of people like maya wishing frank were here wishing john were here they would know what to do um uh, and it does seem like there's a way in which replaying all those memories and remembering them is is a way in which we could get in the way of getting over them and rethinking a history of mars that wasn't simply tied to the death of John Boone, right? Or simply tied to, you know, Frank's machinations. But at the same time, we've seen an entire history of Mars that isn't actually right. tied to the death of John right. Boone. There are people all over Mars who don't give a damn about John Boone, who vaguely remember who he was. It's, it's 200 years later. So there's all kinds of, like, different ways these could be interpreted, I, I, I guess. Um, Right, cause the I, I don't have any good conclusion about all. No, no, no. But I think that that's like that's another like sort of, you know, um, what's the difference between like the story of an individual or or one story of oneself? Yeah, the story of an individual and history. Right. I mean, the the chapter begins with Jackie setting off. Yeah. To leave the solar system. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up, and and, and Nergal, this amazing parting that they have where, uh, you know, they're never going to see each other again. And he, they're writing things in the carpet, basically. Which is a repetition, right, of a previous meeting. When they, were they writing something in, like, the sand somewhere? I think like so, that? and that's because she writes that wherever you go, there yeah, we are. right, exactly. Right? Which is yeah. like a, yeah. Yeah, it's Buckaroo Banzai, right? Uh, isn't it Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Wherever you go, there you are. I think it's not... I think Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is Don't Panic. I thought Buckaroo Banzai was whatever, wherever you go, there you are. Uh, we're going to get letters for this one. Oh, boy. They're going to rake us over the coals. Um, it's something. It's, I think it's a reference to something. It's a freaking reference. I think it's a reference to the oh, Bible. I think I saw it somewhere. But in any event, like we, you know, we are going to, and that that's the conclusion that, that Nergal yeah. comes to at the end of the prologue, is that it's not just Jackie who is going to Aldebaran. It's he is going to Aldebaran. He says, um, later he got a print message by radio from deep space. Wherever you go, there we are. It wasn't true, but it made him feel better. I mean, that's fiction for you, right? That's art and memory it wasn't true but it makes you feel better that was what words would do, could do oh it says it right there <laughs> good god 
Uh, okay, he said as he went through his days wandering the planet. Now I am flying to Aldebaran. I mean, I think there's a way in which that, so like, part, to, to my mind, like one of the things, I mean, so another thing that we get running through the chapter, um, starting from the like beautiful uh, sex and Maya looking at colors and naming the colors and the moment where the sky turns the color of the sky on earth, which is just like, so uh, cool. yeah. And, and just like a heartrending moment yeah. too. Um, I mean, because like, is that memory? I mean, it's partly memory. It's partly though something like, you know, encoded in some, yeah, like instinctual. in some deep way inside like this particular kind of living being that came from earth, you yeah. know? Um, but like the but the other theme that runs along with the colors is like Sax wanting Sax wanting to figure out the color that would blend red and green, but wouldn't be just like an ugly you know like wouldn't be brown. Could, could it be brown? But brown doesn't seem exactly right. It should be a new color, um, which is like a you know like a charming kind of um, theme. But like of course that's the like what is the what is the thing that Nergal has spent his whole life like being able to perceive and hold in his head is like the things that seem separate are actually together. Right. right? Um, And in that way, I think there's a way in which, you know, it is kind of plausible that for Nergal, however sentimental and Jackie-ish being like, I'm taking you with me, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in my memory, right. Presumably, however, that must might, might read as a kind of sentiment and also a way of saying like, you know, don't tie me down, Nergal. Um, like, <laughs> Nergal also in some ways is a kind of person who has the capacity to think of himself as elsewhere too. I think right. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. like we might think that that like um, is becoming less of a sentiment and more of a kind of like material possibility as a way of thinking about what the self yeah. is, right? right? A less right. bounded version yeah. of selfhood yeah. allows for thinking – that like you know um there is a kind of livingness when yeah. you live in someone else's memory and that's right? science too that's the history of science that he and that's science story. too science yes. um yes science <laughs> uh i blew out the speakers on this one i uh, think with the science thing uh-oh. um what else oh well also so when he first encounters so I love the the part of like naming the colors and the color wheel and like that part where it's Terran sky blue is just like so emotional and oh, beautiful. God. But then also that the quality of like there are way more colors in nature than you could ever than you yeah. can quantify. Like there's so many colors and like their color wheel only has like 1200 of them or something yeah. like that. Yes. And it makes me, you know, as a as a film scholar, it makes me think about, you know, the difference between a uh, um, photographic film and digital, which right, is right. far more limited in its color palette than um, than photochemical film is, right. or than the human eye is. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, <laughs> uh, and that they get to like name these colors, and they like, and some of them are it's like Arcady's beard, yeah. or just the day, the time of the day, and the time that it is. I, I was reading this while I was sitting outside, actually, so it was really difficult to keep paying attention to reading it and not just stare up at the sky yeah, and yeah. look at the birds fly around. Um, and um, and the, these the this kind of whole passage with Maya is really very sweet because he just makes a they just make a kind of ritual of um, 
eating together every day. Uh, a, by, bur- a burrito. Yeah, a burrito. <laughs> love it sex eating eating a burrito burrito. um just the mundane act of eating a burrito well it i mean it is like uh i think it's quite interesting that in this chapter so the chapter begins after the prologue we get oh yeah we get a replay of we get michelle dying which is just like uh you know comes out of nowhere uh, what comes out of nowhere and like there's something particularly cruel in uh you know michelle the man who thinks about alchemical relations mm-hmm. dying suddenly and without explanation mm-hmm. right you know the random just being subject then in the end to randomness um but we get the revisiting of what happened at the end of the last chapter which is maya seeing the picture of frank and not knowing who he is and that everybody is shocked and horrified right this like right. emblematizes for them everything that i mean clearly they're worried about maya but it also emblematizes for them they're worried about their own minds presumably um but then when it comes time to do the memory experiment maya doesn't want to do it and she says why would i want to remember those things and there's a way in which she also says i remember enough i remember i remember everything i remember frank i remember john and that and i think that that like um and she's also the one who still cares the most vibrantly about the political situation and cares about the future and i think that is like um i think that's a really interesting moment there because like yeah, I mean, she, the person who has always been, like, you know, subject to her emotions and, like, overly emotional and all those kinds of things, there's a way in which, like, that, like, giving herself over to what she feels is also kind of a version of her, like... Uh, Political commitment? Well, I was going to say, just that is kind of a version of her being present to herself yes. in a way that may, I, I think, is very counter to that either the Michelian nostalgic mode or the Saxian, like I have to have the, I have to have the key to all mythologies in my head. I think that, I think that the political commitment and her, whatever you just said, the, her personal commitment to herself or or in her present moment are the same thing. I mean, that's, I think that's exactly, I mean the exact same thing when I say her political. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, right. Yeah. That like, Yes, history determine. You know, we're living in history, and history determines everything that we do. At the same time, that to act politically today means a some a, a willful forgetting of much of history, and a and a and a, mm. and a and a and a direct engagement with the material conditions of the present as they present themselves to us, regardless of their kind of historical um, causes, which are also needed. Like they, those are present as well. We need to understand them. We don't have to like live in them all the time and relive that image of the past constantly. And we might, you know, I mean, there's like that sort of like, there's the Nietzsche version of why you have to forget. Right. Right. Because like, if you don't forget, like, um, you are mired in a kind of like pastness Mm -hmm. and in a sense that like everything is determined. But I think there, you know, there's another version in which that's like, you know, it allows for a sort of future orientation. Yes. Right? It allows for that. So I'm thinking about the moment toward the end, uh, well, they're on the boat, but before um, before the adventure <laughs> has begun, um, uh, where... Oh, it's the only page I put a blue post-it note on. Um they're talking about they've been talking about the um uh what's happening in clark um the un um 
taking over Clark. This is on uh, 726. Um, and uh, Sax says, oh, my, Maya will be very angry, I fear. <laughs> Anne rolled her eyes. That isn't really the most important ramification, if you ask me. And then, um, uh, you know, Sax kind of realizes that Anne is thinking about this, like, politically. And then on 728, they have this conversation. Um, right. He says, sometimes I regret when I see those seafarers and the lives they lead. It seems ironic that we, that we stand on the brink of a, of a kind of golden age. There he'd said it and felt foolish which will only come to pass when our generation has died. We've worked for it all our lives, and then we have to die before it will come. Like Moses outside Israel. Yes? Did he not get to go in? <laughs> Zach shook his head. Uh, totally feel him on not sure, not being sure about those stories. Well, but, I can imagine how he felt. It's frustrating. I would rather see what happens then. Sometimes I get so curious about the history we'll never know, the future after our death. Right? I mean, and this is like, I feel like one of our favorite questions like mm. is what happens in the future history right um is that a history you don't know mm. Anne was looking at him closely finally she said everything dies someday which is interesting coming from the woman who likes rocks um better to die thinking that you're going to miss a golden age than to go out thinking that you had uh that you had taken down your children's chances with you that you'd left your descendants with all kinds of toxic long-term debts now that would be depressing <laughs> would be depressing I can't so relate. that description of our current situation is depressing uh, but what I, I I was thinking there about that like um, uh, you know the golden the golden age right is just like a really old vision of what a good future would be mm. right the golden age is like the world turned upside down or the age age of leisure and repose mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, where like, you know, roast fowl flies into your mouth or whatever, all <laughs> whatever those like images. Um, and like, there's a great um, part in, this is a weird reference to make right now, but in Shulamith Firestone's The Dialectic of Sex, which is a crazy uh, feminist manifesto written in about 1970. It's a really amazing, amazing book. Um, but she has a whole chapter in that book in which she's like, in order to have a possible future of like gender equality or a future for women at all, we have to eliminate childhood. Mm -hmm. And she makes this completely crazy but also amazing argument about childhood, but really kind of at the core, um, which part of what she's just saying is like, there are some striking similarities between the way in which children and women are oppressed. And sort of at the core of her idea is that children live constantly in their parents' expectations so that parents who mm. now at, oh, yeah. at in adulthood are like, oh shit, life sucks. Right. You know, either project a sort right. of like their golden childhood onto their children or sort of demand that their children like have a golden childhood. Right. So that the child is constantly living in relation to the adult sense of what he or she has like I need to read that. Lost. Yeah. It's all it's a it's a it's a well, fucking awesome book. But, I mean, yeah. Go but ahead. I, but I was thinking about the the way in which like the golden that the idea if you if you think about the future as the golden age, like that is there is a retros that is a kind of right. move of retrospect, right? And one of the things that in this chapter we see you know, in a funny way, Maya be open to is the future that is is not known. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. But that has to be struggled toward. Yes. And you, that you can't let go of that struggle. And, of course, she does it partly because it makes her feel alive and lively and she likes drama and all of those things. But there's also a way in which we see her as, like, open to it in part because she doesn't want her memories 
brought back. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, that there's, yeah, some, some manner mm. of, or some degree of forgetting or repression is like healthy and good. Right. Um, right. And then I also do like bringing it back to the drug experience thing. It's like, it is uh, uh, funny to like frame it as this kind of like uh, tripping experience versus just someone who's there to cook the stew and make sure everybody is yeah. like, tucked in at night or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, because it is, it is like the, the, the remembering uh the the memory booster whatever it is is an is like in a form of escapism yeah. the same way as like a drug experience yeah you know can be or is or whatever i mean and then it raises i mean it raises such an interesting question about like i was thinking so sax part of what feels so sax is thinking through what he wants to work on Oh, like senescence generally, or this, he wants to work on this question of like, why are the people who are at the, you know, at the outer limit of the life extension having this sudden death that people can't explain? Right. I mean, and that, that idea of the problem of sudden inexplicable death is like, yeah, mm -hmm. interesting and fascinating, like just being struck down. And there's a way in which like, when we see Michelle dying, it's as though his death is a reaction. Yeah. Right. To Maya, like, you know, running out once more. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, the whole, yeah. But that sex goes from there to thinking, no, the thing that we have to do is memory. Because if we don't have memory, we aren't anything. Well, he says, right? he said, and I had it right before, but he basically says, um, oh, he says, they had to remember to be truly alive. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And which is really interesting, right? Like, <clears throat> what is life for him then? Uh, because as you were mentioning before, like memory is something that we probably only think that humans properly have. Like animals have instinct and pattern, but do they have memory properly, you know, in the proper human sense of what a memory is, right? Um, I mean, I think I would want to hold out the possibility that they do, but I know. mean, but like, even if they do, then like, do we have access to that, right? Like, we, they, right. They can, can they really share, you know, we can't share them. A, a deer can't share its memory with us. No, right? but like, you know, can you share your memories with me? But this is, that's the whole point. I wish point. you would. Matt. No, that's the whole, <laughs> that's the whole point though, right? Is that like, um, uh, I think the, I think part of it is the fetishization on on Sax's part is he's fetishizing memory the same way that he fetishizes humanity as like what life is or what veriditas is or what consciousness is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and what he's already discovered, what he already knows is that memory isn't something that is in the brain. It's just something that is of a, a quantum state of pattern. And it just so happens that um, the way that our memory manifests itself or the quantum field that creates memory manifests itself in the human being in being human is you know profoundly different or like quote more advanced or whatever and we also have language to share share them uh to share it and science to pass it on and history to frame it within then whatever that same thing would look like in a quote-unquote lower life form right so that what we would think of as instinct or mem or pattern in a in an animal would be you know does that make it not memory does it make it make them any less alive 
than humans are. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think that the sort of part of what's interesting about that is that if the like, um, uh, you know, the sort of cr- so it's like uh, this this may not be totally right, but like in this chapter, we have these kind of like um, two sort of like like cruxes moments around remembering where we get a memory that could be shared right and one of them is seeing zake in the chair and reliving john's death and it just turns out that that is so complicated Mm -hmm. um and that motivation and trauma and um and actually just in some ways like a lot of people running around at some point they're like oh yeah there's another guy with a mustache Mm -hmm. i mean like that that scene is like uh, so complicated, so overdetermined by so many things, by fear, by prejudice, by you know, you know, emotion of all kinds, um, by regret mm-hmm. and self-recrimination, right. all of that stuff. That it, that it both feels like um, a revisitation, but also like it's become like actually we know less mm-hmm. in some ways, yeah. you know, right. Um, and what Sachs really reencounters is a sense of is is not like the story or the fact or anything like that. It's like the feeling, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. His mm-hmm. sense of himself as having failed, mm-hmm. his loss, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then the other moment then is you know, what does he remember? He's like, oh, I was in love with Anne. Right. And there was a moment where right. I tried to hold her hand and she pulled away from me. Yeah. So this like sweet, but also like, you know, like, um, uh, you know, extremely like youthful moment, right? You know, like the kind of story, like what youthful kind of- Youthful when they were in their 50s. Yeah, exactly. And what kind of anchoring story for a life is like yeah. that, right? And then when he when they talk about it, she's like, "Well, that's not what happened. I touched your shoulder, and you flinched. and you flinched." So you know, uh, so like, well, what? So so again, like the thing that you're supposed to like, he gets the memory of it. He remembers this is what happened. She gets the memory of it. She remembers this is what happened. Right. Um. But really, it seems to be the case that memory doesn't get you beyond, like, the gap between, like, self and other yeah. or, like, you know, interpretation and, you know, materiality or whatever right. it is any more than anything else does, right. you know? Like, they're sort of, like... And, like, Wait. they are able... Like, just like he's able to sit on a bench with Maya and, like, do this thing... Right. ...that does not involve them, like, analyzing or, you know, like, talking politics or any of those things, but just, like, looking at colors. In the end, he's able to, like, you know, be with Anne awkwardly and, you know, and saying I love you while his right. nose bleeds all right. over everything, right? Um, despite the fact that, like... There is this kind of like, you know, unbridgeable gap between them, mm-hmm. an unbridgeable gap that is there despite the fact that like all of these people have so much in common that what they have in common far outweighs at this point, like what they don't have mm-hmm. in common, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah, that's interesting because I was going to say like the the idea of having things in, in common, I was going to bring back the kind of concept of the third thing that we can both agree on is there like rather than a memory we're thinking about an archive like there's an object (laughs) there's an object there out in the world or an event that we agree happened but that 
um, our memories of it are completely different. And that's the point of argumentation that we have to relate to each other through the third the third thing, the archive right, right. Um, that we've produced and that is the point of our argument about what actually happened and then what we should do after that, like what the future could possibly look like. And not to get hung up on that third thing, but to understand it as a kind of instrument for actual relation right. as a medium Mediation, rather yeah. than a yeah. than a thing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think then that the sort of, so then what you remember is still just inter- is just interpretive. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. that, you know, you can remember your birth and every single thing that's happened to you from your birth, which just like, it's such a horrible idea. Um, bad, bad idea. <laughs> really, really would not want that. Um, and you can remember being with other people, but they don't quite get to the place of remembering like with each yes, other. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, and that is that the, thing that Nergal imagines yeah, in the we, right? right? Is that he does imagine that like he is going to be with her. Mm-hmm. There is still going to be a we, even though he won't be there, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. And the, that scene with Z- Zeke is um, so interesting too in that regard as well, because the chapter being from Sax's perspective we've read the actual event which was through frank's perspective now we're hearing it from a third party through zeke but because zeke has this memory facility they are fetishizing it as a kind of an archive Mm -hmm. and he is sitting there like a homo habilis you know (laughs) specimen so that that he becomes like we've rendered this human being a kind of like you know mind a memory palace yeah right right, kind of archive that that that's where objective truth is somehow, but then Sachs remembers it differently and right. Frank has remembered it different or experienced it differently right. and all that stuff. Um, I wanted to, in relation to the kind of awkward moment between Sachs and Anne who both liked each other, but then both were so socially maladjusted because they're academics. Um, and so it's like a, just a wonderful <laughs> description that resonates personally with me on so many <laughs> levels. But then another, uh, you know, another great uh, thing I really appreciate about moments in these books has been depiction. Like, well, the depiction of Da Vinci on page 668 is to me a perfect kind of depiction of what graduate school at the University oh, of no. Chicago <laughs> is like and the workshop system especially when you're like from from multiple angles right Sachs, however the younger scientists stared at looking just as nonplussed as if they were being introduced to archimedes <laughs> it was as disconcerting to be treated in such a way as it was to meet such an anachronism and Sachs struggled through several conversations of surprising awkwardness as he tried to convince everyone that he did not know the magic secret of life, (laughs) that he used words to stand for the same things as they did, that his mind was not yet altogether shattered by age, etc. But this estrangement could could also be an advantage. Young scientists as a class tended to be naive empiricists, also idealistic energetic enthusiasts. So coming in from outside, both new and old at once, Sachs was able to impress them in the seminars Ursula convened to discuss the current state of memory work. Sachs laid out his hypotheses concerning the the creation of a possible anamnestic, which with suggestions for various lines of experimental work on these possibilities. And he could see that his suggestions had for the young scientists a kind of prophetic power, (laughs) even or perhaps especially 
when they were quite general comments. <laughs> if these vague suggestions happened to chime with some avenue <laughs> these people were already exploring, then the response could be enthusiastic in the extreme. In fact, it was a case of the more gnomic, the better, which was not very scientific, but there it was. That's yeah. graduate school. If anybody is listening and considering going to graduate school, that is what graduate school is Don't because go. the professor that you've been that you've read the like most influential article or that your professor has been talking about or whatever they will come into the seminar room and say something <laughs> so general and basic and you as a graduate student and your cohort will be like whoa and then the longer you're in graduate school for like 5 or 7 years or whatever you'll be in that same room and that same gnomic professor will come in and say the same thing. And all the young first-year graduate students will be like, oh, he's so brilliant. And you, at this point, will have heard it 17 times. Yeah. And you will be like, get me the fuck out of here. What have I done? Yeah. And then, if you're lucky enough to get a tenure-track job or any job as a professor, you'll go into similar rooms and say similar things. And all those dumb little students <laughs> will... <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> But they, but you know, it it is a really remarkable kind of uh, experience, and it's just a wonderful way that it's laid out here. Like you know that Stan Robinson went to graduate yeah, school I mean, based I, on that. I think the yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the positive version of it is like, well, what's happening in those moments? I love these moments, and I love school, and I love being a professor. So I'm just being cynical oh, I, I know, I know, I know. Nerdy. I just but want no, to lay that out as a disclaimer, and now you can. I mean, I think me. that the positive version of it is like the way in which, like, well, what's really happening is just people are figuring out like what it is that they themselves are thinking exactly along with others, yes. which is like that's the kind of like ideally that's what you want to have happen, happen a lot you know yeah and I think that's a really yeah I mean not that we need to talk about being an advisor but like I find like particularly in my advisory work like um I don't want to be like cryptic no I don't want to be gnomic I want to explain things but also what I what I want more than anything is not to say the thing you know like I don't want students to like write down the words that I'm saying and take them away as like some little shred of the gospel right. you know like I want them to like I want to say things in such a way that they feel like oh yeah yeah, yeah right let no, me that, you yeah, know yeah the the thing it, I mean it happened to me yesterday when I was telling you earlier about like I was describing I don't know what I was talking about but <laughs> there's the problem of whatever image image reality versus lived reality and the purchase capitalism has over producing are the images that we take as being indicative of the past or some kind of representation so like back to the future is always my good example because students still watch that movie Why? and their impression of the 1950s is filtered through the 1985 representation of the 50s seen in back to the future which itself was constructed around a kind yeah. of reaganomic kind of like vision of what the 50s were which was a very make america great again vision of those of that period right and so but that's our vision of the 50s so we're locked into that and i'm saying this and it's a just simple one one kind of example of the way that images kind of overwhelm us and you're just seeing people nod and like literally blink and like thing things click into place for them and that's kind of like the great thing about it and that's the positive version of that is that you've just been at this a longer time as a professor and so you're able to like articulate these ideas in such a way that lots of things that they've already noticed 
and don't have a way to articulate finally like click and make sense in a way that they didn't before and that makes sense in a way for them personally that they don't you know that they can then move on from there right that's the good news right yeah i mean and a lot of that's about just like you know um one not over uh, respecting your own ideas and two realizing that like Everybody is there trying to make sense yes, of things, yeah. you know? I mean, the ones who are asleep are probably in some way also trying to make sense of things. Yes. Um, and, like, but people don't, you know, like, we, like, the way that authority works, people really don't feel like, you know, it's amazing. Like, you know, you can have incredibly smart students, and they still don't feel like it's okay to have their own ideas. Yeah. Or they're sure that, like... I mean, and the, and the academia, like, encourages well, that, them to think you have to, like, go, you know, you have to, like, um, your ideas can only take this form. Right, They have to yeah. be in this language. And you better not make your own argument until you've shown you can do all these other yeah, arguments. Right. And, like, on the one hand, I believe in, like, right. learning to read well and carefully and understand what other people have said. And on the other hand, that can just become this sort be, of, like, yeah. you know, initi- an yeah. initiation ritual, right? It's great because the, Divin- the, the picture of da Vinci is both... Uh, the best version of what science and like thinking and 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 academia could be but it also has all the kind of similar trappings of what of what make it so yeah right right. kind of hard or i'm not i don't want to say awful but um can make it just what it what it is the kind of like the for the people like us who are in it the thing that the things that make it almost intolerable <laughs> i mean we know that it would just be better if it was like uh deinstitutionalized dehierarchized well the thing the thing that right. bow the thing that bow did earlier in the book where she's like working on this problem and she's like the center of attention and like she's like making all these breakthroughs and then she's like oh i gotta go yeah i'm gonna do something yeah. uh see you guys later and because you know uh and it goes back to the the newton einstein thing that he talks about later where it's just into, it's just certain people we fetishize, but um, these discoveries are made because everybody's working on right. it all the time. Right, right. And I think it's also like that that thought. I do think it's repeated in the scene at Underhill, where they all have to come together and do this. As many of them as possible have to come yeah. together and do this together. Right. Yeah. You know, and right. that that like. They're sort of like going off on their own, wandering out in their different directions and experiencing their reliving of it like uh, nonetheless, like why it's happened, you know, has to do with like place and mm-hmm. feeling and also their mutual presence. Yeah. Right? I mean, the degree to which they are all, you know, I was thinking like. And that their they're, obligation to each other has only increased yeah, over time so, because so there are few, especially because yes. there are fewer of them. But yes. but also because just those differences that divided them 150 years ago just simply don't matter anymore. And in a major yeah, way. right, right. And this sort of like the experience that like whether or not they can remember it or even like tell it. I mean, you know, because there's always somebody showing up, like Mary. You know, I can't remember who Mary there's is. There's another George. Yeah. There's a name here Mary that George I was and like, Roger. I was, I was sure like... I was. Ne- I'm like, I've never seen this name before. And every once in a while, Sachs will be like, I, I really didn't know that person. Yeah. Um, but, but nonetheless, right? You know, like it doesn't matter. It's not about like a sort of like, you know, uh, the ability to like tell a story about or you know anecdotes. It's about like a different kind of like commonality. Mary right? Dunkel. Right? I, that sounds right. But Andrea is the name I don't think I've seen before. What about Roger? 
Roger does not ring a bell. <laughs> Neither. I don't know a. I don't know a Roger. <laughs> I don't know George either. Mary Dunkel is definitely a person, but Andrea, that is not a name I've seen. Anyway, yeah. what anyway. were you going to say? Go ahead. Oh, you no, got, no, I did. A, no, I, primed. I was going to, I was just going to say, I, I don't know. Uh, I feel like we should read the passage where they see the, um, the blue sky. Okay. Just because, I mean. You mean Maya and Sax? Yeah. I mean, just yeah, as a on. like winding down. We don't sure. need to do that now. No, you should. Well, I think, let's see. Do I have one more thing to say? So, um, oh, well, because we, we need to we do need to wrap up, I think, because it's almost uh, three o'clock. Oh, yeah. So there's there's one thing that I'll th that's really cool is the floating township. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Which is like, oh, here's one way we could alleviate population on Earth is like the, the North Sea is big. There could be a lot of these 5000 people live on this thing. They do all their own farming. Uh, it seems really cool. They make their own wine. They make their own wine. They fish. They have a distillery, too, I think, hopefully. <laughs> But they're, they're not, they're being careful about their fishing. Yeah, they're being careful about their fishing. Um, robots harvest all their crops. They, they make their, their wine by hand. I don't know what that means. Um, but then while they're there, they get word that the UN troops have invaded uh, right. the, the Clark, Clark and they have kicked out the Martian police. And so we're on our way to another damn war. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, again, no parallels in our contemporary reality. Thank <laughs> God. The world is at peace. Yeah, um, exactly. So we'll find out what, but that's, it's interesting that, um, oh, so this chapter has largely put politics on the back burner to deal with that kind of concrete problem of, and, and immediate problem of memory. And then, you know, politics rears its ugly head again. Right, um, right. Uh, the, where, where, you know, something will have to be done in the next uh, chapter. Hopefully, I, again, don't remember what happens, but I think there's some kind of resolution. It's, it's going to be the end of the book. Well, obviously the end of the book, but well, I think that's there's... A, that's a kind of resolution. I guess politics never resolves itself, do they? No, no. Well, Utopia I mean, is not in the offing. Unless you... <laughs> well, uh, unless you... Depending on what you think utopia is, but in, unless you think like Jackie, well, I'll just like head out of the solar system and if I'm far enough away from Earth, as if she were not herself, bringing the problems exactly. with her. These people are deluded, man. <laughs> Wherever uh, you go, there you are. And you're on Earth and like Earth and like politics and stuff and human beings. That's the problem. I mean, once that opening, that prologue with Jackie <laughs> made me think like once again, like, um, I know you haven't read Aurora yet, but like the conversation between these books and Aurora is so interesting. There's also a like color, sky color thing in that too. I'll read Aurora. Um, it's yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, why don't you go ahead and read? And I don't think that's. I think that's all. I there's another thing that we didn't talk about, which is like the three Anne problem. Oh yeah, it's kind of awesome. Where Anne has like there's an there's an other Anne, but then there's a third Anne that or is counter Anne, mm -hmm. and then there's a third person who lives inside of her that she hasn't named yet. Who she, she, she says is more like Zoe, maybe. She's more like Zoe, and that they both like Zoe, which makes me like like Zoe. <laughs> it make, it no, Anne doesn't like Zoe, right? Doesn't she say? I didn't like her. Sax is like, oh, I liked her. And Anne's like, oh, I didn't like her. I think so. I, one of them did and one of them didn't. Anyway. Well, Sax liked her, as we might well, recall. I mean. Um, yeah, I, it's such a funny, like, um, you know, is that Anne just like. Well, she says, uh, 
did you? Yeah, yeah. Anne says, "Did you ever meet Zoe?" And he's like, "Yeah, I. I uh, he's the one who like pointed her to. Her. Yes, I liked her. Did you? I thought she was awful, and yet there's something like that in me as well. Three people. Um, it's an odd way to think about it. Three's an odd number. Um, I just thought of that. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, she thought she was awful, but then recognizes that there's something." similar well right and then Sachs like links that to um his own experience of living in disguise after his face gets reconstructed right, yeah, right, right? right. um i can't remember Stephen that Lindholm. Oh, right right who who dances and is good at He's sociality my, Stephen Lindholm's my favorite character i think <laughs> oh you know what uh um uh real real exciting detour here so uh uh, the program I teach in, at, at, as you remember, the Matt. Project? No. no, the math program. Yeah, at the end of the year, we always have a uh, party yeah. that we call prom. The prom. We have prom. Uh, this year, the theme is Galaxy, the mm. Galaxy Gala, I mm-hmm. think is what they've called it, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lot better than a lot of themes that we've had. Uh, yeah. So that's cool. Clue. Uh, yeah. Oh, God, clue. <laughs> yeah. What? That just made no sense to me. Yeah. No, well, anyway. Anyway, leaving aside these painful past memories, future, current, and former students listening, I'm Exa- sure. Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, anyway, not, not all of them. Prom. What about it? Well, so the galaxy theme, the theme is space or galaxy or something. So I'm going to go as Nadia. Nice. Yeah. And how how are you going to interpret that? Well, I mean. I mean, part of this is like my my stake in creating a costume and my time to create a costume are low. Right. Um, and uh, I sort of like the idea of like trying to do one that I, nobody's going to know who she is, um, of course. But so basically I'm going to wear like a like a coveralls. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to find them in like a rust, like a Martian yeah, color. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I didn't want to spend more than $20 and that was not happening. Yeah. Uh, so um, and I think I'll make like, you know, some maybe like an Aries patch or something. That's cool. Uh-huh. And yeah. I'll bandage my finger. Yeah. I think she has short hair, which doesn't th- work with my hair. Right. But. I think I'll just ask my sister to like braid it or something. So she's also a Russian reference. She's so round and plump. So you're going to like do the De Niro (laughs) thing, put on, do the Charlize Theron body modification. I mean, she's, she's mostly mostly described as square. Square. I feel like, uh, I'm going to look reasonably square. I'm wearing fucking coveralls. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so I think, uh, it'll be good. Uh, so I'm thinking it's going to be Nadia, like, um, Circa Red Mars, Nadia, yeah. probably. Yeah, right. Because like after that, she kind of, you know, she gets less. She's she's less got her elbow grease in the in the dirt yeah. of Mars and more in the kind of political arena. Yes, so, yeah. and I felt like I kind of want it to be like uh, before Arcadi is dead, um, before you know, like setting the rockets off. Yeah, I, I you know, I don't want her to be. I'm gonna have a good time, so I don't yeah, want to ever yeah, yeah. be traumatized. Positive, yeah, yeah. yeah. You anyway, just letting you know. Okay, cool. Uh, that's what Nadia I'm doing. costume. All right, so why don't we read the uh, description <laughs> of Taryn Blue, and um, so they're they're sitting outside and and they have first they have the the uh, conversation about how um, uh, uh, their wh- what would it be to mix red and green. Sax says, uh, 
uh, or Maya reads a list of colors. Burnt umber, Indian red, matter, alizarin. Those are all green-red mixes. Interesting. Red-green mixes. Don't you find that suggestive? <laughs> she gave him a look. We're talking about colors here, Sax, yeah. not politics. I know, I know, but still, no. Don't be silly. <laughs> it's a good, uh, a good moment. Um, and then they are uh, looking out again. Uh, and they have this great conversation about blue. Look, it's gone indigo right over the mountains. Inten uh, uh, in intense saw edge of black below, purple blue above. That's not indigo, it's royal blue. But they shouldn't call it blue if it's got some red in it. Shouldn't. Look, marine blue, Prussian blue, king's blue. They all have red in them. But that color on the horizon isn't any of those. No, you're right. Nondescript. They marked it on their charts. LS24, Emir 91. September 2206, a new color. And so another evening passed. Then one winter evening, they were sitting on the westernmost bench in the hour before sunset. Everything still, the hellas sea like a plate of glass, the sky cloudless and clean, pure, transparent. And as the sun dropped, everything drifted over the spectrum into the blue until Maya looked up from her salad niçoise and clutched Saks by the arm. Oh my God, look. And she put her paper plate aside, and they both stood instinctively like ancient veterans hearing the national anthem from an approaching parade. Sax swallowed hamburger in a lump. Ah, he said, and stared. Everything was blue, sky blue. Terran sky blue, drenching everything for most of an hour, flooding their retinas and the nerve pathways in their brains. No doubt long starved for precisely that color, the home they had left forever. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. It's really nice to read in the springtime when finally the fucking sun is coming when out. When the sky Every is once finally tearing blue. It's cloudy again and rainy today, but at least the green is, uh, the grass is, is doing its thing. Everything is really, really green. The plants are not hap unhappy about the rain and it's the cool so much rain the humans would like more sun a little bit more sun um that's it for this week we got one more chapter left oh my god it's called phoenix lake it's short one i'm gonna probably cry i'm gonna cry i cry at the end of the book i cry oh, yeah. at the end of this book um, i'm gonna cry on the podcast okay <laughs> uh tune in for that everybody uh and i guess is it a maya chapter or i actually have a feeling I don't know. I think it's a Maya chapter. Um, but I don't know. We're going to find out. We're going to find out. Uh, you can email us, podcast, uh, maroon.marspodcast at Mars. You can follow us on Twitter, podcast on Mars. You can uh, rate and review us on iTunes. You can leave us a voicemail at the anchor.fm app, where mm -hmm. you could also, if you so choose, give us a donation, but you really don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, that's all. Yeah. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Oh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you um, one more time next week for Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. I've been mad. <laughs> <laughs> you want to make the ending as long as possible. I, yeah, I understand that. I've read in the podcast manuals. Oh, stretch out the ending? Yeah, stretch it out. Yeah. All right, let's go get a beer. Okay. Okay, bye. 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 <laughs>